We're reading today from 2 Timothy, and it's 2 Timothy chapter 2, and it's verses 1 to 13. So let's hear God as he speaks to us tonight. And it's called Paul's Appeal Renewed. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men and women who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. But if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Father, we've been reading Paul's letter here, and it's more than Paul's letter, it's also Paul's testimony to how you were faithful to him and how you helped him to proclaim your word and how you kept him faithful to the very end. Father, would you speak to us through your word, by your spirit tonight, so that we too can share the story of what you've done for us with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're continuing on our whistle-stop tour of the New Testament, and we've reached 2 Timothy. So I guess it's back to 1st Ephesus Presbyterian once again. But this time, Paul's not focusing so much on the Ephesians, the, the congregation themselves, as on their minister and their young pastor, Timothy. And that's why the letters 1 and 2 Timothy, along with Paul's letter to Timothy's colleague Titus, who was over in Crete, they're sometimes called the pastoral epistles, because they're 
chiefly, I suppose, a reflection for for Titus and Timothy. But this letter, it's no blue book. It's not something written just for ministers and designated elders. It certainly sets out Paul's blueprint for the church and Paul's vision and Paul's resolutions for the future. And it certainly gives Timothy a lot of direction and good advice to help him as he is in charge of this congregation. And unlike the blue book, it does so very, very succinctly and very, very clearly. It's also a very intimate, very personal letter. It's like a testimony. It's unlike anything you'd ever see from the office of the moderator or the clerk of the General Assembly. You see, this is a letter written in an extreme situation. And so there's an urgency to it that we don't see anywhere else. And that's because Paul, who's been Timothy's lifelong friend and mentor and spiritual teacher and father, is once again in prison. And this time, it's not the comparative freedom of house arrest. This time, we learn in the passage we read that Paul is actually literally in chains now. He's chained up like a criminal, and he's locked up in a dungeon, and he's awaiting trial, probably trial for treason, for declaring that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And the likely sentence, because Paul is a Roman citizen, is that he's going to be executed by beheading. So even in Paul's own estimation, he's facing certain death. And we read about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he gives us the famous words that he's being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for his departure. He's fought the good fight. He's finished the race. And he's kept the faith. And so here Paul is, and he's conscious that his, his fight, his life is nearly over. And at the same time, he's burdened by his concerns for all the believers that he's led to faith and he's shaped and he's loved. And he's anxious that the good news of the gospel is going to continue. And there's all kinds of challenges and heresies going on. And then above all, his mind and heart, I suppose, are sharpened because he knows he's about to die. And I suppose that wonderfully concentrates the mind. And so he writes one last letter to his friend and son in the faith and colleague, Timothy. And so this is really Paul saying to Timothy, look, this is what matters to me above everything else. This is what I want you to focus on and invest in and give your life to. And the commentators describe this as Paul's last will and testament, if you like. But it's more than that. It's his personal words, his last words to Timothy, his dear son in the faith and to the church that he so much loves. I suppose at this time in our own congregation's life, we've got the handing over of one phase of ministry and the taking up potentially of a new stage in ministry. And it's a time of transition and preparation and anticipation and maybe a bit of tension. And so surely this letter has got something really powerful to say to us. And surely if we read this letter, it should cause us to sit up straight and to sharpen up and to re-sort out our focus and maybe to sift things through and think things through a bit and work out what really, really matters to us. What's the most important thing for our congregation at our time and in our generation? And because God's word is living and active, it's not just ancient history. Maybe we should take this letter as the last will and testament 
the personal words, the urgent appeal of the Lord direct to us in Orangefield tonight. This is God's word to us. And as soon as you start to look at 2 Timothy, you realize that actually the stakes are pretty high. And in chapter 1 and verses 6 to 7, Paul tells Timothy, don't be timid. Don't be ashamed of Jesus and his gospel. But instead, I want you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. For God, he says, hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. The last time I had a real fire, it was in a holiday cottage in Fermanagh, and it had this lovely wood-burning stove. And you sort of think, I'll be able to curl up in front of it and relax and so on. But instead of actually relaxing in front of this wood-burning stove, it was actually hard work. It was great lighting it at first and seeing the newspapers and the logs all blaze up. But very soon it died out and it went cold and grey and dead again. And you had to keep on shoving the logs in and you kept poking it with the poker and making sure it stayed sparked and stayed lit and blazed up right again. And that's the image that we've got here. There's this idea of Timothy as a kind of dying coal, a burnt out log, if you like. And there's just the faintest glow of red in it. And then suddenly it's being blown on by the Spirit of God and it's firing and it's catching and it's roaring up into life again. But goodness, is Timothy ever going to need the Spirit's fire? Because Paul declares to him that opposition is rife and nearly the whole province of Asia has deserted him. And so Paul urgently calls on Timothy in verse 13 and 14. Look, what you've heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help, not of your own strength, but the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And then we get to chapter 2, which is really the heart of the matter. And chapter 2 explains what guarding the good deposit of the gospel actually means in practice. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrustable to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So Paul's solemn charge, his last words, if you like, to Timothy and to us, are these. Guarding the good deposit of the gospel means faithfully keeping what we've been received and then passing it on, handing it down to reliable, faithful people who will, in turn, teach others. And I suppose there's two aspects of this we need to get hold of. Because firstly, Paul is saying to Timothy, look, the legacy of the gospel which you've received from me is really, really trustworthy. It's not just any old story. It's not just any old wives' tale. It's the real, genuine article It's not my own invention or some ancient tradition handed down by mere men. But the good news which I preach and teach is what's been directly revealed to me by Jesus Christ himself on the Damascus Road. And I've passed on to you what Jesus revealed to me. And I've done so publicly and I've done so consistently. And there's many witnesses who can testify to me. 
So you, Timothy, need to have utter confidence that this really is the gospel truth. And I guess it's vitally important for us, too, to be really clear about the authenticity and the origin of the scriptures that we have and to be able to transmit them faithfully and fully, to watch our lives and doctrine carefully, as we were reminded last week when we looked at 1 Timothy. But there's also another bit to this verse, isn't there? There's a kind of second stage in the process of guarding the gospel. And there's to be a movement, there's to be something dynamic going on here, because guarding the gospel doesn't actually mean holding on to it, being defensive about it. It doesn't mean locking it up in a case or in a safe or admiring it in some museum or other, nor does it mean preserving it in some great dusty tome that we never actually open. But actually, preserving the gospel, the word of God is dynamic, not just static, and preserving the gospel means keeping the gospel moving sharing it out with others, being ready to hand it over, constantly passing it on. And just as Paul saw the potential in Timothy and helped him in his faith and nurtured him and prayed for him and encouraged him and taught him uh, and served alongside him and then started him out in ministry for himself. So now Paul tells Timothy, look, you're to do the exact same thing for others. You're to lead others to faith and nurture them And teach them so that they in turn can lead others to faith and nurture them and teach them. And so the story goes and so the gospel grows. As we teach other people all that God has said and done for us. And as disciples make disciples. And actually this sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? Uh, And this is starting maybe to ring a few bells because there's another final word somewhere, more famous last word, saying something like this somewhere else. And they appear in front of our very noses on the screens before every service. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew chapter 28. Disciples going on to make disciples. These are the last words of Jesus and Paul. This is the hub. This is the heart of church. This is the one essential thing around which the Christian faith revolves. So actually, Paul's urgent appeal to Timothy and to us is this. The one really important thing, the one thing that matters above all else is that we're to be disciples who pass on our faith, who make disciples. And whatever else we do as church, however great it is and however efficient it is and however even enjoyable it is, if it doesn't produce disciples who make disciples, then we've lost our identity and we've failed in our task. And of course... The phrase disciples making disciples has been up on the screen for years. Uh, And people have actually said, I'm a bit tired of looking at this. But but it's funny, isn't it? Because you can have something right in front of your nose, and yet you just don't get it. Uh, And the penny really never drops. Because actually, this isn't just some nice slogan to admire from afar. 
It's not just something that takes place somewhere out there for the evangelists or the missionaries in far-off places. It's not just something for ministers up in pulpits, but it's something for all of us that we all should be doing right here, starting right where we are. And of course, there's all kinds of things going on in Orangefield that are great, but maybe we still haven't really got there yet. Because if making disciples is the one thing that's to define us as a church, it's the one thing that's also to define each and every believer, not just the enthusiastic few. And yet we still haven't really maybe got this vital principle. To be a disciple is by definition to go and make disciples for ourselves. And to be honest, I struggle with this because I'm not an evangelist. And I'm sure a lot of you may be thinking, well, we're not evangelists either. We just haven't got that kind of gift. But actually, that doesn't let us off the hook. Because making disciples, well, it's about making disciples, not just converts, essential though that is. And actually, conversion is only the first stage in a very long process of growing and nurturing and teaching and becoming more like Jesus and equipping and releasing for ministry and service and then sending out to make yet more disciples. So there's a massive range of stuff under that little word we label discipleship. Let's not forget also that if you're making a disciple, then that implies some measure of connecting with people and integrating people and caring for people and keeping people and holding on to people. Because it's no use making disciples who come in through the front doors of Orangefield only for them to slip out through the back door a few months later or a few years later. Unless, of course, we're intentionally sending them out to go and make disciples somewhere else on our behalf. So actually making disciples is is a lengthy, complex process. It's not just making converts. And it requires lots of input by lots of people with all kinds of personalities and temperaments and spiritual gifts. And then again, you might say, well, it talks a lot in these verses about teaching too, and I'm not a teacher. I couldn't possibly preach or teach or lead a Bible study or a small group or deal with tough questions in a community Bible experience. But actually, when the Bible talks about making disciples, it's got very little to do with teaching as we know it. It's got very little to do with sitting in classrooms or listening to lectures or with learning out of books. Discipleship in the scriptures is much more to do with real relationships, praying and worshipping and serving, as well as learning from your rabbi or your teacher, but also living and working and sleeping and eating and fishing and barbecuing on the beach and doing life together, just as Jesus did with the twelve and the three and just as Paul did with his son in the faith, and mentor Timothy. So books and ideas can be really helpful, don't get me wrong. They're what I've probably spent most of my life on. But quite frankly, very few people are likely to come to Jesus and to stay with Jesus because of theological arguments alone. I came to faith at university. When I was 16, my mum died quite suddenly, and it raised all kinds of questions I'd never thought about. And I realized that nobody had any real answers to them, neither in school nor in church. And these were the people I thought had all the answers. And so I was about to go up to university, and I thought, well, university will be a good place for me to find out about God. You know, there's lots of intelligent people there that will sort me out. 
But, but then, of course, the reverse was true because it wasn't actually that I was finding God, but God found me instead. But I have to say, I didn't like it at all when somebody first explained the gospel to me. And the guy told me, get down on your knees and confess that you're a sinner and ask Jesus into your life. I couldn't do that. Far too embarrassing. After all, I'm English, aren't I? And anyway, I'm an Anglican, and Anglicans don't really do that kind of thing. This was an Anglican church, actually. Um, But I remember that when I was kind of tackled or confronted with Jesus, I raised all kinds of logical arguments just to try and avoid the real issue of being confronted with a living Lord. And there'd been a massive earthquake in Mexico at the time, I think it was. So I said, well, why did God allow that massive earthquake if he really loves people? And actually, I don't think I was really bothered about the suffering South Americans at all. And I didn't come to Christ at that point. But I did go to an inquirer's class and got started in thinking about the Christian faith. But what really converted me, I suppose, was not the answer I was given. What really got to me was, over a period of time, seeing the people in that little beginner's group I went to, and I saw that they worshipped Jesus and they were worshipping somebody real, and I saw them sharing what he was doing in their lives, just helping them with everyday problems and issues, And I saw that they took an interest in me and they walked alongside me and they showed me very often, not necessarily saying so, that they cared for me and they loved me. And as somebody once said, I didn't think much of his arguments, but I couldn't disprove his life. So actually, making disciples is going to take all of us with all our various personalities and gifts And so along with the people with the gift of evangelism and the leaders of Alpha and the teachers and the ministers and the pastors, we're going to need everybody else. We're going to need the welcomers, the people who greet you at the door, the people who say hello to you at the seat next door to you, the people who chat you up, the patient walkers alongside, the people who listen to you, the people who care for you, the people who discern what's going on, the people who strategize and plan, the people who chiver you on, the people who urge you, and let's be frank, the people that sometimes nag you. And of course, always we're going to need the people who encourage us, the writers of wee notes, the people who send texts, the bakers and the cups of coffee makers. All these people are going to be needed in the task of being disciples who make disciples. So making disciples, this is the big thing. This is what takes precedence. This is what must shape all of our agendas and meetings and organizations and groups and maybe even our finance because this is what defines us as the church, passing on the good deposit of the gospel, the truth of Jesus that has been given to us, being disciples who make disciples. So that's our calling But along with the calling, there also comes a warning, if you look at the next few verses, verses 3 to 7. Join with me, says Paul, in enduring hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Nobody serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete... 
He doesn't receive the victor's crown until he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. So actually, Paul is saying to Timothy, look, and he's saying to us, if we really want to be disciples that make disciples, we'd better get ready. Because there's going to be a battle on our hands. Endure suffering with me like a good soldier of Jesus Christ, is how he puts it. And so let's make no mistake about it. This is a real call to arms. And even here, we're starting to face the same kind of problem, although not so much as Paul and Timothy did. I can practice whatever form of Christianity I like at home or in church, in private, as long as I'm not sharing my faith at work or throwing my beliefs down somebody else's throat in the public space. For example, by offering to pray for a patient in hospital or wearing a cross at the airline check-in desk or maybe even refusing to bake a certain test case cake. You see, if we stand above the paraphrase and we make a public stand and we declare our faith in public, it's going to be increasingly costly. And we're going to need to get ready for the risk and we're going to need beliefs that will get us ready to cope with those risks. As Paul said to Timothy, we need to reflect on these things, trusting that the Lord will give us insight into how we're going to handle all of this. Because our increasingly tolerant society is actually going to mean less and less tolerance for gospel-driven Christianity. And then in addition to this, making disciples, well, by nature it's a kind of messy, scrappy, haphazard, uncertain kind of process. It's a lengthy process because actually it lasts a lifetime. Uh, And there's no fast results and there's no quick fix. And it can actually be a difficult, painful process because there's there's real people involved here and they'll falter and fail and they won't turn up and they'll let you down and maybe they'll even desert and deny you at times, just like they did with Jesus and with Paul and Timothy. And then it's very hard to see how you're doing because you can count converts and you can maybe keep a tally of members and attendance and so on, but how do you really measure if people are growing and maturing in Christ. And then, of course, it's a vulnerable process because we're human beings too. And we've all got failings and weaknesses and annoyances and idiosyncrasies. And we too are very much works in process, just in case any of you hadn't noticed. And so Paul gives us three images to encourage us or challenge us rather, maybe. The soldier and the athlete and the farmer. And they're very different jobs, but what actually joins them together is stuff like hard work and hardship and graft and discipline. And a soldier's life is all about obedience. A squaddy doesn't loll about in civvies. He sorts out his locker and he irons his kits and he polishes his boots and he does 200 star jumps and he goes up the Brecon Beacons and back again in time for breakfast with a backpack full of bricks. Uh, And it's yes, sir, and no, sir, and certainly, sir. Um, However difficult or mad it all seems, because above all else, he wants to please the sergeant major. And for us too, well, we want to do what Jesus has told us to do, what Jesus has commanded us to do. Just like the kid's song goes, God said, go into all the world and tell them about me. 
And if that's what Jesus said, that's what I'll do. So we're going to need obedience. And then there's the athlete. And the athlete doesn't win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And whether it's ball-tampering Australian cricketers or entire Russian Olympic teams or cyclists using inhalers, well, just as in our day, so as it seems in Paul's, there were clearly all kinds of temptations for the athlete to make life a bit easier, to boost their performance by dodging the rules, even though it meant risking the Olympic place or the victor's laurel wreath. So faithfulness, authenticity, integrity, these aren't virtues that are highly prized these days. But they're absolutely vital if we're to be effective makers of disciples and sharers of the gospel because people will be looking at our lives. We're going to need faithfulness. And then finally, there's the poor old farmer. And farming, to be honest, is a bit of a mucky business. And the farmers in the Bible days weren't great gentry with great estates like Downton Abbey or whatever. They were mostly dirt-poor tenant labourers, so it wasn't too profitable a job. And what's more, it was a long, slow, labour-intensive process because they didn't have all our modern machinery and RHI incentive schemes. So discipleship is going to be a messy business, and it's going to be a laborious business, and it's going to take patience and hard slog. It takes time and months and years to see results, as we learned this morning, sometimes you can labor away and you'll never see a harvest until that is you get to heaven, perhaps. I remember I was in Kenya and I taught students there and I was a bit discouraged and someone said to me, well, we're not in this for a round of applause or a pat on the back. And disciple-making is a long job. It's slow plugging away. It's graft. It takes patience and grace and faith. And it's not often that you'll be thanked. And so we're going to need perseverance, the discipline of perseverance. As we heard this morning, the word of God, the gospel, has been held out to us and it's been given to us as a gift. But we have to be willing not just to hear it, but to act upon it, to obey it, to be faithful to it, to persevere, to let it sink down deep into the soil of our hearts so that it produces a crop. Are we doing this or are we too distracted to see what really matters Let's not waste our lives, but let's put them to kingdom business. So if that's the challenge, and if these are the characteristics that it's going to take, what's going to keep us going? Well, for Paul, the answer was very clear. Verses 8 to 10. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain also the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You see, Paul was able to endure all things, even imprisonment and imminent death, because he had this eternal view of things. He remembered Jesus And he remembered that Jesus was human, just like us, so he knows what it's like to be like us. But he also remembered that Jesus is risen from the dead and that he's reigning in victory, not just on Easter Sunday, but now and every day. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, for Paul, absolutely everything else in the world has changed. 
And so much does he believe in this good news that Jesus has risen from the dead, that even though he's in chains and a criminal, being treated like a criminal in prison for himself, he knows that God's word can never be chained. It will never return to him empty. It will always accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. And the gospel that he preached will always have the power to save. And so Paul was absolutely certain that one day he too would see the salvation of all God's people, all the elect, all the people for whom he'd labored and toiled and prayed and struggled and maybe wept. And they would be there in heaven, saved from wrath, made complete, ruling and reigning with Jesus in the highest place. And so the end of the mission was also the thing that spurred Paul on. And he was committed to this task. He was committed to preaching the gospel. He endured everything it demanded because he knew his present life was only half the story. And that one day his light and momentary troubles would be overtaken by eternal glory. As I was thinking about this passage over the last few days, what came to me actually was one of those adverts that you see in the papers at the weekend featuring a very, very expensive watch. And you maybe know the one. There's a suave-looking father and a very, very clean-cut-looking kid. And it's a kind of arty shot set against the background of a sports car or some enormous yacht. And apparently the campaign's been so successful that the same slogan's been running since 1996, and they've never changed it. You never actually own a Patek Philippe. You merely look after it for the next generation. And I guess when you're spending up to 300000 on a watch, you maybe need to think that it does a bit more than simply tell the time like any £5 job from Tesco's would. And I suppose what they think they're buying into is an heirloom, an inheritance, something timeless, something that's going to outlast you, that you can pass down this tradition that just goes on and on and on. But then it struck me that we've got something right here in our hands that's truly timeless. We've got a real treasure. We've got a real inheritance. And it's never going to break. And it's never going to stop. And it's never going to get lost. And it's never going to get nicked. And it's a treasure of such price that if only people knew about it, they'd sell all that they had to buy it. So spiritually speaking, we're rolling in it. And we're stinking rich, if only we knew it. And so yes, we're to enjoy the gospel and to get hold of all its blessings and its benefits. But we're not to hoard it. We're not to grasp onto it. Because actually we don't own it. We're to hold it lightly, if you like, with open hands. Because it isn't our possession to keep. It's an inheritance. It's a trust. And it's a stewardship. And we come from a congregation with a great evangelical and missionary tradition. And that's been handed down to us by those who've gone before us. But what are we doing? What am I doing with the treasure of the gospel in our time and generation? Are we hoarding it? Are we sitting on it? Are we guarding it? Are we kind of looking at it fondly and admiring its beauty? Or are we devoting ourselves to handing it down and handing it over and passing it on to others?
And so maybe we should say about Orangefield, we never actually own the gospel. We're merely looking after it for the next generation. We get hold of it, we're given it as a gift, and that's precisely in order to give it away. And Paul obviously knew this principle, and so too did the Apostle John. At the end of his life, he wrote this, I've no greater joy to know than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And that was his desire and his joy at the end of his life and his ministry. So disciples making disciples. That's the last words and that's the inheritance that we've been given by Jesus and Paul and Timothy and John. So how are we doing in Orangefield? What's our inheritance going to be? Will more people be walking in truth? Will there be more worshippers in heaven because of who we were and how we chose to live and what we decided to focus on?